Hi. Thank you, Elise. <clears throat> and thank you all for letting me address you today. And uh, Amanda's not here, but it's thanks to her that I was invited to speak. Uh, she thought my people might find my story inspiring. I hope it will be. Um, Hugh Taft Morales spoke here a couple weeks ago about humanist spirituality, and I'm here with another angle on that topic. Like Hugh, I think spirituality is a useful idea for humanists, atheists, skeptics, and anybody else. And the version of spirituality I engage in or explore has no reliance on supernatural assumptions. If I use the word God, for instance, which I do as part of my spiritual practice, it's a word, a concept, an element of that practice. If I borrow practices and prayers from traditional religions, the word God's going to be in there. And if I want to get as much good out of those practices and prayers as true believers do, uh, I need to have some idea of what that word means that doesn't offend my naturalist skeptical sensibilities, but at the same time an idea that's rich enough to carry the weight of hope, refuge, redemption, etc., that it can carry for those who use it without naturalist and skeptical reservations. I could talk for a long time about all the ways that God can be conceived without assuming God actually exists as some kind of supernatural or omnipotent entity. Briefly, though, I tend to think of God as the best part of myself or of people in general, maybe as representing the good in general or humanity's best aspirations, or, to be honest, as a big, strong, loving, imaginary friend. Um, And adults aren't supposed to need imaginary friends, but I may be developmentally delayed in that respect. I need all the friends I can get, and the imaginary ones are hard to alienate. Um, Anyway, my my point here, before I go on, is that as a humanist, naturalist skeptic, I can not only be interested in spirituality of a particularly humanist sort with carefully crafted humanist language, I can also use language, tools, ideas, completely drenched in concepts, assumptions, anathema to my beliefs, and through the flexibility of my own understanding and interpretations, I can find wisdom, hope, inspiration, and healing in that language, in practices that use that language. All spiritual words and ideas, God and the rest of the lexicon of spiritual and religious traditions, have been subject to wildly shifting understandings and interpretations from their beginnings. The meanings of these words have never stayed still. So we can leave dogma to the dogmatists. My liberal humanist spirituality refuses to close its ears to words that carry a taint of someone else's dogma. So... Uh, My story, the one Amanda thought might be inspiring in a nutshell, is that I struggled for decades with morbid obesity. However hard I fought, dieted, exercised, whatever, eventually I I lost those fights and my weight kept going up and my health kept getting worse. Um, And then I found a 12-step recovery program and through fellowship uh, and spiritual practice, this burden, uh, the struggle I had borne almost my entire life was suddenly lifted. And Through that, I held on to my atheism for whatever reason. Most people who experience, you know, what feels like the miracle of recovery start believing that the higher power they've been praying to must really exist. I did not start believing that. Um, I could see that what I was doing was working, and maybe it had involved belief in some way, but it didn't require me to believe anything I find unbelievable. And then through this process, I became interested in how spirituality works insofar as it does work, Uh, What part does belief really play? What happens when you try to do spirituality or religion as an atheist? 
um, I experienced a kind of conversion, a kind of salvation. I was saved literally from morbid obesity and from my compulsion to eat. And I was saved even from a sense of deprivation that comes with dieting. If, uh, and then if spiritual practice and fellowship could accomplish this in my life, you know, I wonder what, what other wonders were in store for me. Was spirituality a kind of philosopher's stone even for an atheist like me? Were all my dreams now within reach? At least those dreams compatible with living an ethical spiritual life? Or had I just stumbled on something that would solve one particular problem for a couple of years? Uh, one of the slogans in my program is, you grow or you go, which uh, means if we don't continue growing spiritually, we're likely to lose whatever recovery uh, we've, we've achieved. So not just the, the promise, but the demand of my recovery it was that the rest of my life be a spiritual trek, a continual advancement in my goodness as a person, continual efforts to be more loving, more present, less selfish, less anxious, less blaming of other people, more accepting, more at peace, more generous, more effective in making the world a better place. So has that come to pass? Has that been my journey? Um, to be perfectly honest, no. I, I, keep draw, I keep trying. I work the steps. I meditate. I teach meditation. I do therapy. I take parenting classes. But pretty often I think I'm still the depressive, self-centered misanthrope that I was before. <laughs> um, so my topic for today is not the humanist spirituality of rationality, wonder, awe, social justice, ethics, and tolerance that Hugh talked about. My topic is the dark night of the soul. Um, Despair, frustration, hopelessness, suffering, complacence, comfortable misery, hunger for deeper meaning, or avoidance and escapism in the face of the possibility that we're letting life's opportunities for real meaning slip through our fingers. Hugh invoked the pragmatist philosophers, um, William James, John Dewey, and spoke about humanist spirituality as a practical spirituality, a spirituality in and of the world. There are many possible responses to spiritual problems, uh, the dark night of, of the soul problems, psychotherapy, psycho, psychiatric medita- medications, exercise, reading literature, etc. And all these have their spiritual aspects, if you look at them that way, spiritual benefits. But what makes them not necessarily spiritual on their own is that they constitute individual, self-focused remedies. When you or I, the individual, is in the grips of despair, meaninglessness, it's our own problem. It's private. Um, maybe not the sort of thing we should get up and announce to the world. It, it's none of your business if I'm in therapy and what I'm trying to work on there. But when despair is conceived as spiritual and the remedy sought is spiritual, then it all gets wrapped up in, in ethics, the meaningful connections between our lives and others. A monk goes out to the forest to meditate, doesn't see another soul for years maybe, but the motivation is to free all living beings from suffering. When I bring my dis- despair to a psychoanalyst, it's my sad life on the couch, but I bring it to Wes or to a 12-step group or Buddhist meditation, and then I'm an example of the human condition, a, a locus for the suffering that besets us all. The whole world needs to be healed, but my life is the small patch of garden. It's my special responsibility to tend with the help, wisdom, support, gardening implements I can borrow from my recovery groups, from ancient 
uh, meditation traditions from the congregation here. So we're going to talk about hard stuff, the dark night of the soul stuff. I'll be talking about some of my own suffering material. I'm sure we'd all feel more comfortable leaving private. Uh, But the blight and weeds infesting my patch of garden threaten yours as well. You can listen to my troubles as a stand-in for your own. Or if none of this resonates too well, if despair feels far away from you right now, if you feel happy and secure in a life rich with meaning, consider yourself lucky and listen to renew your compassion for those whose souls are not so healthy. So a prayer for those who suffer here and abroad, a prayer for ourselves and all the suffering we've caused, knowingly or not, for ourselves and all the pains, disappointments, injustices, and illnesses we've suffered, knowingly or not. A prayer that we can even know our own suffering and that our, that of our loved ones and everyone we are bound to, because our suffering wants to hide from us, and the suffering that we cause wants to hide from us, and we don't want to see the part we've played. But we can. We, we can bear it without evasions, without dissembling, without blaming ourselves or others. I think we can. That's what this prayer is for. Normally, in our everyday lives, we don't look in the dark, painful places. We've built up a mighty civilization of distractions, powers, finance, prestige, badges of privilege, obligations, obsessions, entertainments, consumer products, drugs, all sorts of enticements and seductions. But here we are on a Sunday morning, allowing ourselves to rest and reflect on those things that get swept out of mind in the rush of daily life. As I was writing, I prayed... um, Let me set aside my distractions and ambitions and prepare to be of service to the people I'll address Sunday morning. Let me be a loving and attentive father, husband, son, brother, friend. Let me be steadfast in my work and true to myself, to my vision for myself and the world around me. I don't know if it matters who I'm praying to, if it's to the mysterious recesses of my unconscious mind, to my imaginary friend, or to the collective kindness of the people in this room, listening so politely to all my awkward attempts to reach your hearts. I've had a hard time deciding how much graphic detail to share about what it was like for me being morbidly obese, 115 pounds heavier than I am now, struggling to lose weight or to accept myself as I was. I was caught in a a relentless cycle of despair, resolution, failure, self-loathing, and escape, full of righteous anger at the world's treatment of fat people. But no one's denigration of fat people beat me down more than my own. In speaking with you today, I don't want to parrot society's prejudices around obesity as much as I may continue to be caught up in them myself. Internally, I still feel very much like a fat person, barely disguised in a thin person's body. But all you can see is the thin person and hear me somehow celebrating my thinness as a spiritual victory, which is not what I intend. But I don't quite know how to tread here. The victory is not that my body became socially acceptable. It, I can't, but I can't deny that for me I needed that to allow this real spiritual victory to occur. The real victory was escape from that cycle of self-loathing, the mental cycle that was uh, really destroying my life. If I could have accepted myself as I was and maintained a modicum of physical health, that would have been escape from that cycle. But I couldn't do it. Partly, I hated how much I cared about other people's opinions of me, but it wasn't just that. I, I just wasn't a happy eater, uh, suffering the incidental consequences of my happy eating. There was a desperation in what I was doing. 
When I got into the recovery program and started listening to people at meetings and listening to my sponsors, starting to eat what I committed to eat each day, meditated daily, got on my knees to pray morning and night, despite the fact that I was an atheist, not to mention Jewish, and Jews don't pray on our knees. We get pretty creeped out at the thought of praying on our knees. Um, the, the program was clearly working in my sponsor's life, so I just did what she said as best as I could manage. And I was off that desperate cycle. I wasn't torturing myself anymore, at least not that way. So you can see why I would think of it as a religious conversion, even though I stayed an atheist. I saw no evidence of God's existence, but I saw plenty of evidence in others and myself that following a spiritual recovery program was transforming me into a recognizably uh, different person. What my conversion taught me is that it's possible to change things about ourselves that we thought were impossible to change. And at their best, religions and spiritual practices exist to help us do that. Whatever aspects of your life might be causing you chronic spiritual pain, you might have to try three or ten or thirty different approaches before finding something that helps, but the message I want to bring is don't let belief or skepticism cut you off from some practice or community or special effort, uh, spiritual effort that might be the one that helps you. To... Um, talk about practical spirituality, practical approaches to the dark night of the soul, I can really only discuss the practices I'm personally familiar with. And those are primarily uh, Buddhist meditation and 12-step recovery programs. The specific form of Buddhist meditation I do and teach here at West Tuesday evenings a month is an offshoot of Vipassana or insight meditation. It's a fairly new thing called recollective awareness, part of the movement called secular Buddhism. It's completely accepting of thoughts that come up in meditation. There's no attempt to clear the mind. The focus is on noticing, experiencing, and reflecting on what comes up during meditation. We're quiet, and we use that time to learn about and come to terms with the ways that our minds work. And through this practice, maybe to shift towards more skillful ways of being. I like it because there's no sense that some mysterious, magical aspect of meditation is going to unveil metaphysical truths. As with most forms of Buddhist meditation, you sit quietly, you listen occasionally maybe to some of the teachings, and you subtly, very gradually get to know yourself better, which cultivates compassion for self and others. If I'm very agitated or disturbed by something, meditation is the quickest path towards establishing some perspective, calming down, aligning my thoughts and decisions with my wiser mind, distancing myself from knee-jerk reactions and compulsive rumination. I let those thoughts and feelings arise, and I look at them with some gentle curiosity if I can, and they tend to run their course and quiet down pretty quickly, at least for a while. When I'm not agitated or disturbed, the effects of meditation are often subtle to the point of being indiscernible. I keep doing it because I believe there are benefits. There are countless scientific studies showing evidence of mental and physical benefits from meditation. Buddhism, for me and for many Westerners, is the ancient religion that meshes best with contemporary psychological and philosophical thought. There is not a lot of uncontested scientific evidence for the benefits of 12-step programs. But in my experience, their effects can be seriously dramatic. Hugh's discussion of the spiritual ideas of the pragmatist philosophers a couple weeks ago helped me feel like it was okay to look at 12-step programs in some depth here today. Alcoholics Anonymous was being founded around the same time that John Dewey was writing A Common Faith. William James is the only philosopher quoted in the AA Big Book. They're designed as thoroughly practical spiritual programs. As much 
as they invoke the idea of God, it's never about appeasing some particular supernatural entity. The aim is always on changing our own lives so we can live in accordance with our best values, whatever those may be. And now I'm going to talk a bit about how those programs operate in my life. As I said before, or suggested, I'm not at a, at a moment in my life where I feel spiritually well anchored. Um, when it came time to write this talk, I was in a bad way. I am supposed to offer inspiration, right? I, if I can't make my version of humanist spirituality sound pretty great, what am I doing up here? Um, I was saying to myself, spirituality, you've performed amazing miracles in my life, but what have you done for me lately? I'm thin, but I still feel like a failure. Uh, Looking over my life, what I've tried to accomplish, I've had several brushes with success. I've caught the first little glimmers of fame five times for totally different things, which is cool. Maybe I'm one of those rare people who could be famous in several different fields. Except that after each of my brushes with success, I hit some obstacle and gave up, lost focus, lost interest, started over with something else. In one of my 12-step fellowships, I've been working on a fourth step, a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So, compounding my despair in writing this talk, I was, through that, really getting in touch with my sense of failure. In recent years, I've been lurching between three different careers. Why do I always seem so far from living up to my potential? Why do I keep having to start over? Is it my ADD? Some unconscious drive to self-sabotage? Bad luck? Am I just not as smart as I think? Am I lazy? In the midst of sharing my anxieties with a fellow about all this, I learned about another 12-step program I wasn't aware of that deals with this kind of issue. Whatever the reasons for my chronic sense of underachievement, I'm not alone. Lots of people struggle in strikingly similar ways with the same issues, and a bunch of them have come together to form a spiritual fellowship that claims to have an answer. I don't know if their answer is going to work for me. I just discovered it a week ago. But... I can tell from what I've read so far that there are some kindred spirits there. They have hope. They'll talk with me, uh, try to help me for free because helping newcomers is part of the 12-step, uh, part of 12-step recovery. Like <clears throat> half a billion other people, I want to be famous, and most of us fame seekers are going to fail. I really don't know how this new group works, but what I imagine is that I can grapple with my desire in fellowship with others harboring similar desires. Victory doesn't have to mean that I actually become famous or that I eradicate my desire for fame. Victory would mean maybe that I could hold the desire without it making me feel like a failure. Plenty of actually famous people still feel like failures. They aren't like they aren't famous enough or something. Spiritual victory is not winning a zero-sum game between me and the rest of the rat race. It could mean devoting myself to some work that feels like a worthy use of my talents, applying myself even in the face of discouragements and feeling proud of my efforts, whatever their fruits may be. I know I can't do it by myself, though. I've tried. The wisdom is already in my head, but without help, I haven't been able to really live it. So I'm not expecting you to look at me and say, there's a guy who really knows how to take the spiritual bull by the horns or to believe that now that I've found this new program, my failure issues are going to suddenly be lifted like my addictive eating was. What I'm trying to share is that I'm struggling, Um, but my struggles feel meaningful when I see them in a spiritual light. I could go hire a life coach, attend personal empowerment workshops, but this group feels more hopeful to me, less lonely. Um, 
and I'm not going to know until I try for a while. 12-step recovery is unique, a unique spiritual model. Wikipedia lists 35 active 12-step fellowships, starting with Alcoholics Anonymous and including groups for many other addictions, for people in troubled relationships with addicts, for people with problems around food, smoking, money, clutter, emotions, all sorts of compulsive behaviors. The aim of these programs is not a general spiritual aim. Uh, No bodhisattva vowed to relieve the suffering of all sentient beings. The aim is to help the alcoholic or gambler or codependent or the whatever that still suffers. People in multiple 12-step groups say we deal with our addictions in the order in which they're killing us. So food's not killing me right now, but my sense of failure is. So I'm ready at this point to work on it. I apologize for not naming specific 12-step programs that I'm talking about. Naming them and naming myself as a member would violate their traditions around anonymity and promotion. And which brings up another thing about about these programs. I urge you to go read the 12 traditions on Wikipedia if you get a chance. If every major religion adopted the 12 traditions of AA for its operating principles, I believe almost every atrocity and abuse committed in the name of religion would cease. Uh, Don't form big hierarchies. Uh, Don't let individual members speak for the group. Don't let leaders exploit their positions of responsibility. Don't accept more money than the bare minimum required for operating. Don't get involved in outside controversies. Welcome everyone who identifies with this specific problem. Focus on the the common welfare. 12-step programs direct a laser-like focus on a specific spiritual malady where healing is genuinely possible and they fiercely keep distractions at bay. They don't try to be all things to all people. Uh, But even as they're very targeted in in who their members are, they're also amazingly diverse ethnically, socioeconomically, and ideologically. If God wasn't so central to these programs, atheists would probably champion them as replacements for traditional religions. Instead, the God focus makes them seem to outsiders just like more superstition and spiritual hucksterism. And... Yes, for many personalities, maybe most, they're not a good match. Most people probably aren't looking for a spiritual program to transform their way of living. They're like spiritual buzzsaws, very powerful tools designed for very specific problems. But we should not write them off because of the God stuff. If you were interested, you could take my approach and get fancy and philosophical about what you think God means, or you could try one of the smaller secular groups inspired by 12-step recovery, or investigate and see what can be borrowed or stolen from these programs and brought into ethical culture or any other spiritual community or practice you engage in. The, uh, the last century and a half has been a period of great spiritual innovation and cross-fertilization. And ethical culture stands as a prototypical and enduring example of that innovation. In letting me talk here, uh, it's, you've sort of invited me to participate in that cross-fertilization to bring seeds I've gleaned from the corners of the spiritual landscape that I've happened to wander. So we've spent a bit of time looking at uh, the dark night of the soul, the spiritual sicknesses killing some of us or, or sapping our lives. And we've looked at a couple of spiritual practices for healing these sicknesses. I apologize for any discomfort I've aroused by laying my own struggles before you. Hopefully I haven't embarrassed my family or friends too much. My hope is that you may be inspired to more compassion uh, for spiritual suffering in others and maybe yourself. 
and more appreciation for the variety of spiritual practices people use to address that suffering. Maybe you'll be inspired to address some suffering in your own life in a way you haven't tried before. Or maybe you can be relieved that Josh is going to lead us in an uplifting song now. <laughs>